The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're uh, continuing our study of this Upper Room Discourse. Uh, Yeshua is speaking to His disciples And he's telling them now about his departure. He's going to leave them. And he's also been speaking to them about the persecution that they're going to experience. And this persecution, he relates to the fact that the world has persecuted him, and since they're united to him, they can expect the same kind of persecution from the world. He said in verse 2, They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming. Whatever kills you will think they're offering a service to God. Yeshua warns them that they're going to be put out of the synagogue. The word here, aposunagagos, and it means to be expelled from the synagogue. In other words, there would be a trial and they would just put them out. Now, as I said a couple studies ago, if you were first century Judaism and you were thrown out of the synagogue, you'd be eliminated from the hopes and the prerogatives of being Jewish. Uh, You'd be thrown out of your family, basically. You would lose your job. You would lose your friends. You'd be reduced, in many cases, to begging because nobody would hire you. It wasn't anything like being kicked out of a church today, okay? This was a big deal. You would be considered a rebel. You were worse than a pagan Gentile. He goes on to say, whoever kills you will think he's offering God a service. Isn't that interesting? They're going to kill you, and they're doing it in effect as a worship to God. Now, besides Yeshua, can you think of some other disciples who were murdered in Jerusalem and a murder that was sanctioned by the Jewish religious authorities? James, okay. Who else? Stephen, okay. Very good class. We had Stephen in Acts, right? He was stoned to death while Saul, the officer of the Sanhedrin, held the coats. And then we have James, the son of Zebedee, who was uh, beheaded by order of Herod Antipas. And then we got James, the bishop of Jerusalem, who was murdered by order of the Jewish high priest Annas and the Jewish Sanhedrin, according to the Jewish historian Josephus. He says in verse 4, But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you, told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. Now, Yeshua is essentially reiterating what He said in verse 1. I don't want you to be shocked. I want you prepared in advance, so that when it comes, you're going to know this is exactly what I said would happen. Now, what are the these things? Well, that Yeshua didn't tell them from the beginning. Um, he didn't tell them about the inevitability of the persecution, that people are going to try to kill them for His sake. He didn't fill them in on all these details. He says, when their hour comes. Now, that refers to the time when the disciples' persecutors are basically going to take control of their fate. He says, you may remember that I told them to you. Yeah. So in other words, the memory that Yeshua has forewarned His disciples is going to enable them to realize that these situations, though they seem like they're out of control, people are killing us. Well, wait a minute. The Lord said this would happen. Okay, This is not 
you know, this is not a something that's out of control. God's still in control. This would simply strengthen their faith because the Lord told them it's going to happen. As they reflected on Yeshua's persecution, the disciples would see he was in complete control of the situation. As only God could be. So it's just a, another indication for them that he is God. He said, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. See, as long as Yeshua was with them, the persecution was directed at him. You don't read anything up to this point in the Gospels about anybody persecuting the disciples. When he departed to the Father, the burden of persecution is going to come on them because Christ is in them. So they're going to persecute Christ through them. Um, These new covenant church leaders are going to be the focus of the persecution. All of that hostility, everything that they had displayed against Yeshua is going to come on these disciples. He says in verse 5, But now I'm going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? So Yeshua here is returning to the theme of His departure, which He introduced in chapter 7.33, when He told the Jewish crowds that they would <clears throat> He'd be with them just a little while longer. And where they're going, He can't come. And He comes back to the theme in the Lord's Supper in chapter 13. Now He rebukes them for not inquiring of where He's going. He says, now I'm going to be with Him who sent me. Again, this is the constant theme. I'm going back to the Father. He's completed His mission. He's returning to heaven to be with His Father. And He says, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, this is one of those verses that the critics of the Bible pounce on. Alright? They see this as a contradiction in the Scripture because Peter asked Him, Where are you going? In chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? But Yeshua says, none of you ask me, where are you going? So they take that as a contradiction. Well, is that what's going on here? Why does Yeshua say, none of you ask me where where I'm going? Where Where are you going? Well, some scholars point out that he uses the present tense in this passage and suggests that Yeshua is saying, why don't you ask me now where I'm going? I don't think that fits very well linguistically. I like Carson's explanation here. Look what Carson has to say. He says, One suspects that part of the problem lies in the fairly mechanical approach to the text, an approach that is sometimes insensitive to literary nuances. In the flow of the argument, both in 13.36 and in 14.5, it is not clear that either Peter or Thomas was really asking the question formally represented by their words. In other words, they say that, but they're not really asking a question. Watch what he says here. I think this is, it makes sense if you think about it. He says, the little boy, disappointed that his father is suddenly called away for an emergency meeting, when both the boy and the dad had expected to go fishing together, says, ah, dad, where are you going? But he cares nothing at all to learn the destination. The question is a protest. The unspoken question is, Why are you leaving me? The disciples have been asking several questions of that sort. They have not really asked thoughtful questions about where Jesus is going and what it means to them. They have been too self-absorbed in their own loss. So Yeshua, I think, is saying here, none of you really are interested in where I'm going. You don't care about that. You're not asking me that. You just focused on your own sorrow over the fact that I'm leaving you and I'm not going to be with you. 
And in the very next verse, he says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So he again points out that the revelation of his departure has made the disciples sad rather than happy. Back in chapter 14, verse 28, he said, if you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. So if you guys love me, you should be happy. I'm going back to the Father. I'm going back to glory. But they seemed to have very little interest in where he was going. What concerned them was the sorrow of his departing. They're thinking about themselves. They're shocked at Yeshua's revelation of coming persecution. Wait a minute, we're going to be persecuted and you're not going to be here? They're not really concerned about him. They're preoccupied with themselves, with their own problems. They're not focused on the Lord at all. And you know, how often is that true of us? We're just focused on us. What does it do to us? What's it mean to us? We're not looking at the bigger picture. You know, these guys for three and a half years have been with the Lord, right? They're accustomed to running to Christ when they got a problem, going to Him for counseling, calling Him to bail Him out of difficult situations. They feel safe when they're with Him. You can understand that, right? I mean, they're used to being saved from all kinds of different things. Situations like they're in a boat in the midst of a storm and the boat's taken on water and they think they're all going to die. And Yeshua says, be still, and the storm stops. And their response is, when they got in the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, you are certainly God's Son. In other words, wow, nobody controls the weather. And, and those who are familiar with Scripture would know that the sea often stands for chaos and disorder. And it's Yahweh who controls chaos and disorder and makes things right. And so they're just, you know, blown away. Our friend, the Lord, Yeshua, He just speaks and everything goes the way it should be. In our Gospel John here, chapter 6.21, we saw this. And they were willing to receive Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You know, no wonder Matthew says, and those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, you certainly are God's Son. Think about it. They see Yeshua walking on the water, and they're afraid to death. They think it's a you know, ghost. Matthew says Peter gets out and walks with them. They both get back in the boat. And they get into the boat, and suddenly they're no longer in the middle of the lake anymore. They're at their destination. That's amazing. So, what are they going to do without Him? You can understand that this is troubling to them. All right, He's their protector. He saves them from bad situations. He feeds them when they get hungry. He can do I mean, all the things they've seen Him do, raise the dead, heal the sick. And He says, I'm leaving you? And they're going to persecute you? So none of the disciples, and I think this is the, the sense of the thing, none of the disciples say to Him, tell us, Lord, what does it mean for you to go back to the Father? What will that be like? What exactly has to take place for you in order to return to the Father? They're not asking those questions. They're just saying, what about us? Hey, you can't leave us. We need you. They're not thinking about Christ returning to His glory with the Father and what that would mean. They're just stuck on the sorrow of the moment. They didn't ask about His death, burial, resurrection. Their focus is just inward. We've seen this before. But this is not the end of the story. You, know, you look at that and you think, what is wrong with these guys? All this time with the Lord and they just don't seem to get it. 
<clears throat> in chapter 14, he said, if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And if you love me, if you remember, is a second class conditional sentence, contrary to fact. He's saying, if you love me, which you don't, because you're preoccupied yourself, not me, you would have rejoiced which you are not doing. They just didn't get it, but the good news is, they finally did get it. Notice what Luke tells us. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Okay, they're finally rejoicing. This is after the resurrection, and now the Lord's parting. He's going back to heaven, and they're like, there's joy there, because now they get it. They're rejoicing at His ascension. But in our text, they're still very confused. They're scared. They just don't get it. Not yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. All right, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go... I'll send him to you. Now, the promise that Yeshua the Messiah would send the Spirit of God would not have been a new thought to these disciples, all right? If they're familiar with the Tanakh, they knew the Tanakh promised the gift of the Spirit in the Messianic age. I'm sure you're familiar with Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So they're aware that the spirit would usher in the new covenant age. And Yeshua had already talked to them about the coming Spirit back in John 14, 16. He says, and I'm going to ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper to be with you. Now, we, we kind of brought attention to this last time. The word another here is very significant. <clears throat> there are two Greek words for another. One is alos, the other heteros. Alos means another just like me. I'm going to give you another one just like me. And that tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. He's another comforter. Heteros would be another of a different kind, but Allah's another one just like me. And so since Yeshua is Yahweh and is equal to Yahweh the Father, the Spirit is equal to Yeshua also and equal to Yahweh. The New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's a person. He's the third person of the Trinity. Now Yeshua tells them, it is to your advantage that I go away. You think they bought that for a second? Hey guys, listen, it's going to be better for you if I leave. Wait a minute. No, no, not at all. We feel really safe when you're around. How is it even possible, they're probably thinking, how is it possible that it's, we're advantaged by you leaving? They must have felt that having Yeshua walk with them in the flesh was the huge advantage to them. But don't we think that way at times? As Christians, we often envy the disciples. Man, they just they walk with the Lord. They're with them. They ate with them. They did all this stuff. And we wish we could walk with them. 
We wish we could listen to Him answer questions. We wish we could ask Him questions. We wish we could watch Him perform some of the miracles that He did. But we forget the limitations of both His humanity and ours. See, we forget that in the flesh, Yeshua could only be at one place at one time. When Yeshua was on the Mount of Transfiguration, He took three of the disciples with Him. Remember what the rest of them were doing? They were down at the bottom of the mountain trying to deliver a young boy from demons. But they couldn't do it. They needed Yeshua. Without Him, they just were weak. They just they couldn't do it. So as soon as Yeshua comes down from the mountain, He sees the commotion, and He was appealed to right away to deliver this boy. Hey, you need to help this boy. <clears throat> Matthew 17 says, And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. Now, he's up. Yeshua's on the mountain. And Yeshua answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Yeshua rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was instantly healed. When Yeshua wasn't with them, their faith was weak. They couldn't seem to accomplish anything. And think about it. If Yeshua was with the disciple in Bethany, then he couldn't be with the disciple in Nazareth. He's either in Bethany or he's in Nazareth. He wasn't in both places. But now, through the Holy Spirit, the Lord Yeshua will be with all of His disciples at all time, everywhere. Alright? The Holy Spirit is never bound by time or space relations. Yeshua, while on earth, is in one place at one time, as we saw in the Mount of Transfiguration. The promise Yeshua made at the end of the Great Commission, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, finds its fulfillment in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's with us all the time. The paraclete will not only be with them as Yeshua has been, but He's going to be in them as well, He tells them. John 14, 17. Even the Spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. And what Yeshua spoke of here was the abiding, the permanent relationship in which the Spirit remained with believers for the rest of their lives. This new relationship to the Holy Spirit is one of the distinctive differences between the Old and New Covenant age. The Spirit comes to permanently indwell believers. Now let me ask you this. Why does Yeshua have to leave before the paraclete can come to the disciples? Why has He got to go? I mean, why can't He just have them come? Well, let's look at some Scripture. John 7, 38 and 39. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this He said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Yeshua had not yet been glorified. Alright, so the Spirit hasn't given because He can't be given until the Lord goes to heaven. The new covenant ministry of the Spirit in dwelling believers would not begin until Pentecost after Christ was glorified. Now, Yeshua's glorification, as we've said over and over, talks about His death, His resurrection, His ascension to the, into the presence of the Father. Yeshua must ascend to the Father before He can send the paraclete. Now, Yeshua's prophecy of the coming of the paraclete to all His disciples will be fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 on the Jewish 
Pilgrim Day, or the Pilgrim Feast of Pentecost. Look what uh, we're told in Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, okay, he's been crucified, buried, raised, exalted, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So he's raised, he received the promise of the Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So once he's exalted to the Father, because he finished the work of dying, being resurrected, then the Father sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now this made a huge difference in these disciples, okay? You look at these guys before, they're constantly failing, constantly, you know, weak. Afterwards, they're just totally different people, okay? Just as the Son had to have a body in order to do His work on earth, the Spirit of God needs a body to accomplish His ministries. Guess what that body is? Corporately, it's the church. Individually, it's us. The Holy Spirit works through people in whom He lives. See, that's why we're image bearers of Christ, because the Holy Spirit is coming to exalt Christ through our lives. He works through us. We're going to see in this text, the Holy Spirit is not just coming around zapping people. He's working through believers. D.A. Carson writes this, The thought is not that Jesus and the Holy Spirit cannot for unarticulated metaphysical reasons simultaneously minister to God's people or any other such strange notion. He's talking about you know, why does the, the Lord have to leave before the Spirit comes. He says, rather the thought is eschatological. The many biblical promises that the Spirit will characterize the age of the kingdom of God breed anticipation. But this saving reign of God cannot be fully inaugurated with Jesus, inaugurated until Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and been exalted to the Father's right hand, returned to the glory He enjoyed with the Father before the world began. So, until Christ is resurrected, until He's back in the Father, He does not send the Spirit. Now, in verse 8 He says, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Let me share with you a quote from Carson. D.A. Carson's a, a scholar of high caliber. All right? And here's a very important quote that he gives you on this. He says, The Greek of these four verses, 8 through 11, is so compressed that it's difficult to decide exactly what it means. Man, I could not agree more. This is one of those texts. Ever since I became a Christian, reading, I'd read that and I'd be like scratching my head. I don't know what that means. Someday I'll figure that out. And I had to come to a point, because it's in the text, that I said, i got to try to figure that out. But I spent the last two weeks banging my head on the desk, praying, crying out to God, because this, this text is very difficult. And I want to understand, what's he saying here about the Spirit? So, I'm going to hit you with my best shot, okay? Um, <clears throat> I'm not saying this is right, that I'm 100% accurate here, but this is how I see it right now. If I had a couple more months to dwell on this, I might come up with some different ideas, but i got a deadline every week, so this is it. If you got any insight, I'm sure welcome to hear it. But the difficulty of these four verses is seen in the numerous ways that they have been interpreted. All right, I mean, just read the different commentaries, just get different insight. I mean, it's so many different ways this has been interpreted. And disagreements regarding the interpretation of what verses 8-11 through mean begin 
with the verb alengo, convict. Start right there, okay? So when he comes, he will convict. Oh, what does that mean? And they go all different kinds of you know, ways this is translated. Well, the focus in classical Greek is, has the idea of putting to shame, treating with contempt, cross-examining, proving, refuting. And in the Greek, most relevant to the period at the time of the writing of the fourth gospel, the verb kind of has the same focus. When we see this, what we have to do is look through the Scripture at this thing. All right, This verb occurs 18 times in the New Testament. And arguably, in every instant, this verb has the idea of showing someone his sin. Okay? Now, think about that, alright? Showing someone his sin. Convict. Uh, we think of the word convict, that's usually not you know, the idea. But if you look up these 18 references, I think you'll get some idea on why that's true. So the Greek word elenko, it's a legal term. When used, when an attorney is present in a case such as, you know, an attorney's presenting his case and he's just, this is it, you're convicted. Alright? To convict could be understood in purely judicial sense of bringing down a negative verdict regardless of whether or not the convicted party admits guilt or not. You're guilty. Now, we're looking at conviction in more of a legal sense here as a trial. You've got to think of it, conviction as a trial. And given the forensic context, he just said in verse 3 he was talking about the synagogue. They were putting out of the synagogue. There would be a trial involved there. So he's talking about trials, talking about this legal. The forensic use of the term to prosecute is probably a good translation here. To prosecute. Now, Craig S. Keener writes this. In the context of the disciples' discouragement due to the world's hostility, the paraclete would come to prosecute the world. The disciples would be strong in the face of persecution despite Jesus' absence because the paraclete would be with them. This suggests that the paraclete's prosecution of the world is on their behalf and through their testimony. Alright, now hang on to that because that's significant. All right, get, he's giving you this idea of prosecution instead of conviction. You know, you can understand those terms. You see it in a legal term. You're convicted, you're prosecuted, you're convicted, alright? But he notice that he says it's through their testimony that this prosecution is coming about. Keener goes on to say, in view of 16.7, send him to you, it appears clear that the Spirit's work in 16.8-11 is through the disciples. Please mark that. Please understand that. That's very significant for this text. Alright? This text is talking about what the Spirit's going to do, but it's what He's going to do through the disciples. Jesus sends the Spirit to the disciples But through the disciples, the Spirit paraclete continues Jesus' ministry to the world. Thus, as Jesus prosecuted the world, the paraclete continues to prosecute the world through the apostolic preaching of Jesus. So the paraclete's going to continue the work of Jesus. He's going to prosecute the world, but he's going to do this through the preaching of the apostles, through the preaching of the disciples. 
You know, it's easy to see the word here convict and sort of give it a, a contemporary religious meaning, right? Because that's what we do. We read it and we say, oh, this word means this. You can't do that when you're reading the Bible. You have to say, what did they think that word mean? What did that word mean to them? You've got to do some research. You've got to do a little work because you want to find out what it means to them. Because contemporary, it doesn't matter what it means today. What did it mean then? You know, today we talk about someone being convicted. Like I might say, I was really convicted about what I said to them last night. What's that mean? It means I felt bad, right? I felt bad. I felt bad about what I said. But if you keep the word convict in a courtroom setting, it takes on a completely different meaning. Nothing to do with how you feel. The dictionary says this of convicting. Declare someone to be guilty of a criminal offense by the verdict of a jury or the decision of a judge in a court of law that these were convicted of robbery. You see a difference there in convicted? It's not how you feel. They're convicted. I don't care how they feel. They're guilty of a crime and they've been convicted of it. If you say, a man was convicted, you don't mean he felt bad. You mean he was tried and convicted. The trial's over. You're not talking about someone's emotional feelings. And then we have to take that out of this context here. The point here is not that the Spirit is doing something inside sinners. You know, when He comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world. They'll all feel bad. No. He's not talking about that. Yeshua's not talking what the Spirit's going to do to make people feel bad about sinning. He's saying, I'm going to render a final verdict. They stand convicted. But He's not talking about what the Spirit's going to do in lost people. He's talking about what the Spirit's going to do in His people. He's going to work through His people to prosecute or convict the world. They're going to render a final verdict. So let me ask you, how does the Holy Spirit do this work of conviction? How does He do it? How does the Holy Spirit prosecute the world? Do what? Right. They convicted him. They convicted him through the Word of God, though. See, he's going to work through the disciples, as Keener said. I give you that quote from Keener again. In view of 16.7, send him to you. It appears clear that the Spirit's work is through the disciples. That's how he's going to work. So the Holy Spirit is going to prosecute the world through his people. He's going to do this, listen, through the preaching of Scripture. Let's look at a couple uses of elenco. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Convicted here? Elenco. All right? You're convicted. Doesn't does it mean, oh, I feel bad? No. It's the law saying what you're doing is wrong. It's sin. You're a lawbreaker and you stand convicted. The law prosecutes you. Now notice how Paul uses this word alanko in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, talking about your assembly, the church, he's convicted by all 
and is called to account by all. Now, you understand the background to this text here? The context is dealing with the subject of tongues. And he goes, if someone comes into your assembly, you're all meeting here, and someone comes in, an outsider, by, and he hears you speaking in tongues, what's he going to say? People are whacked. This is crazy. What are they doing standing up and yelling all this gibberish stuff? Okay? That's just nuts. They're nuts. But if someone comes in and you preach the word, they're convicted. And again, we're not talking about how they feel. They're realizing the word says, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. It prosecutes them. Doesn't have anything to do with how they feel. It means they'll be measured against the law of God and found guilty. In Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Same word. Alenko. Now the contrast is given by the adversative conjunction here, day, but, and the comparative adverb, instead. Instead of participating in sins, they're to expose them. They're to convict them. They're to prosecute them. When you see people, people doing the unfruitful works of darkness, which is forbidden by the Word of God, you're to take the Word of God, and I believe in this context in Ephesians, he's talking about other believers. You see other believers in sin, you're to prosecute them, you're to convict them with the Word of God, and so that you're doing this, the Word of God says, you're guilty. You render them convicted. So believers are using the Word of God to convict the world of its sin. Now let me be clear here. No sinner will ever believe the gospel without the Holy Spirit giving them new life. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And dead means dead. All right. Now it's using an analogy, so they're not physically dead, they're spiritually dead. They cannot relate to God. They're alienated from the life of God. It's the Holy Spirit who makes them alive so they can believe the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who grants faith. So no one is going to believe this on his own. He doesn't have the capacity to do that. It can't be done. That's why Yeshua said in John chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is just flesh. It doesn't get anywhere. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born from above. That has to happen. So we understand that it's the Holy Spirit who gives life. He saves people. But I also hope that we understand that people cannot be saved unless they hear the Gospel. Because faith comes by hearing the truth concerning Christ. So the Holy Spirit transforms the heart, but not apart from the Word of God being preached. It's not that people are just walking down the street and the Holy Spirit comes along and zaps them. And they're like, oh, I'm saved. No, they have to hear the Word of God. It's the Word of God that convicts them. And the Holy Spirit gives them life. Now notice how Paul put it in Romans 10.13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord from the Tanakh is an act of worship. It's to believe in this context that Yeshua is the God of Israel. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the one true God, Yahweh, will be saved from the wrath of God. Alright? 
Then he goes on to say, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? See, in this verse, Paul moved from the effect to the cause. He's working his way backward from the cause to the effect. He says, how are they going to call on Him in whom they have not believed? Do you understand that? Obviously, you're not going to call on Yeshua as Yahweh until you believe He is Yahweh. Once you believe He's Yahweh, then you can call on Him. No one's going to do it if they don't believe. Okay, let's go back a little further. How do they believe on whom they've never heard? Now, the in is not in this text, but it's implied from the preceding statement. But it does have a whom. That verb takes the genitive case, and it could be read this way. But how shall they believe Him whom they have not heard? So, basically speaking of the message of the Gospel, the Lord speaks through the Gospel. And He backs up further. And how do they hear unless someone's preaching? Now, some translations have without a preacher. Okay? It's, it's not a preacher. It's the preaching. Paul uses a participle preaching to show that the action of what is regularly done. The present participle speaks of an ongoing act of the proclamation of the Gospel. The word preacher here comes from the Greek word keruso. And keruso means to declare the policy of the king. He's the herald of the king. The king's given this message. I've come. I'm declaring the king's message. So it has to do with declaring a policy. In this case, God's policy. So the Spirit uses us to speak forth the life-changing message of the gospel of Yeshua. But it's not our words that convict the world. world. It's the word of God that convicts them. He says in verse 8, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the world is wrong about the chief nature of sin. The world is wrong about righteousness, and the world is wrong about judgment. All three nouns lack the article, indicating that Yeshua is referring to basic principles rather than individual instances. For example, the issue is not who sinned, the issue is what constitutes sin. He will convict the world of ignorance of the true nature of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will expose the sin of unbelief. He will reveal the righteousness of Christ. And Satan and every enemy of Christ will face judgment. Now the term world here, I want you to get this. World does not mean everybody without exception but everybody without distinction. That's an important distinction. Okay? So you got to get that. I was talking a couple weeks ago to a man, and he was asking me questions about Calvinism, and he goes, I see some verses that seem really strong Calvinistic, but, you know, why does God be so confusing? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, John 3.16, he said he loved the world. Why didn't he just say there, I love the elect? He says, that's what he is saying. You don't get what world means, okay? When he says world, he doesn't mean I love every single person. I said, was Esau part of the world? And he went, yeah. I said, did God love Esau? He said, nope. I'm like, okay. It's not every single person. Alright? He's saying, without distinction, I like Jews, I like Gentiles. Okay, I love both. That's the idea here. So he's going to convict the world, not simply minister just to Jewish people, but the whole world he's going to convict with the facts of sin and righteousness and judgment. It's not just stuck with the Jews, all right? 
Then he says in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. All right. What this tells us, people, is the essence of sin is not what we do. That is totally contrary to the world. If you ask people, if they think they're going to heaven, they, and they say yes, you say why, what will the first thing they'll tell you? Because I do, I do, I do. Or if you're not going, because I don't do, I don't. They connect it with doing. The essence of sin is what we believe. And when we do not believe that Yeshua is Yahweh, that's the root of all sin. See, Yeshua is the ultimate and the final revelation of God to man. That's what John 1, 1 through 18 is all about. He came in the flesh to reveal God. Thus, to reject Yeshua as Yahweh in the flesh is the ultimate sin. John 8, 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, ego me, you will die in your sins. You'll die in your sins. What are they to believe? What is he saying? People have to believe that he is Yahweh. And if they don't believe that, they will die in their sins. And that's what he's saying when he uses the ego emi here. I am. He's connecting himself with Yahweh from Exodus 3. There's only one thing that prevents you from dying and being damned forever. And that's belief that Yeshua is Yahweh. Belief of the truth. Nothing more and nothing less is what separates the saved from the damned. Belief of the truth. Works play no part in salvation, but our whole world thinks they do. It's all about what they're doing. It's the pride of man. I can earn my right with God. No, it's about trusting one who already did it for you. He says in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no more. Now, righteousness is from the Greek word dikaiosune, which occurs only here in the fourth gospel. It refers to truly righteous conduct, right standing before God. So the Holy Spirit is going to prove the world wrong concerning the subject of righteousness. And namely here, it's talking about Yeshua's righteousness, which is demonstrated when He is glorified in His return to the Father. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. See, Yeshua had repeatedly claimed oneness with the Father, and His opponents had repeatedly rejected this and labeled Him as a deceiver, as a sinner, and as a blasphemer. Yeshua's resurrection and ascent to the Father proved His righteousness and proved His deity. You know, a righteous man would not claim to be a deity. But Yeshua could claim that because He was, and the resurrection proved that. Although he was condemned to die, he was truly righteous and he deserved the title Son of God. So the world thinks wrong about Christ. And the Holy Spirit is going to prove them wrong through the Word of God. So the message that we are to proclaim to the world is that they are never good enough to qualify for heaven. It's not about works. You'll never get there. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody, every person has fallen short. But God has provided a means by which He can save by the perfect righteousness of His Son. And the way that happens is by believing in Him. See, because the only way 
anybody will ever get to heaven is if they are as righteous as Christ. That's the only way you get to heaven. You can't have some subpar righteousness, some 80% righteous. You can't do that. It has to be Christ's righteousness. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. He didn't know any sin, but He took ours, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. He took our sin, He gives us His righteousness. And that's the only way anybody will get into heaven. So the message we proclaim is, listen, you're wrong about sin. It's not what you do. It's what you believe. You're wrong about righteousness. Because you'll never earn enough righteousness. You have to accept Christ's righteousness. He alone is the righteous one. But our message has one other element concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. Another message that the world does not want to hear is the message of judgment. Because we're too judgmental anyway, right? As Christians. The Scripture teaches that God is judge of all the earth. Genesis 18.25 And it teaches that God has delegated the authority to judge to Yeshua, John 5.22. Who, when He returns, from their perspective, comes as a judge, Jude 14-15. We preach judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Has been judged. The verb is past tense. And so the point has reference not to the future, but to something that's to take place in the very near future. And in fact, our Lord writes as if it has already taken place. He's referring to the cross, but it's so sure to happen. He says, the ruler of this world is judged, has been judged. Now the basis on which the Holy Spirit proves the world wrong, and thus worthy of judgment, which is yet to come to the writers, to the readers of this, is the fact that Satan has already been judged. Yeshua spoke of this judgment of Satan, and He linked it to the judgment of the world, Back in 1231, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler be cast out. See, if Satan has been condemned at the cross, then surely every other sinner's judgment is certain as well. It is the reality of Satan's defeat and his consequences which the Holy Spirit drives home to the world as proof that sinners are going to be judged. It is the judgment of which the apostles spoke. And what's interesting here, if you go through the book of Acts and you read their messages and you read them preaching, this is what they're preaching. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look at Paul before Felix and Drusilla. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul to hear him speak. Go get this guy, Paul. Let's hear what he has to say. You know what's interesting? The reason he was doing this, he wanted Paul to give him money, so he kept calling him and letting him speak. You know, offer me a bribe so I can get you out of here. But Paul didn't do that. He just preached to him. And he preached to him about faith in Christ. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Felix was alarmed. I don't like that message. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So when Paul preached to the Roman governor Felix... And Drusilla, he didn't say, Felix, Drusilla, I want you to know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He didn't tell him that. Why not? He preached faith in Christ 
righteousness and judgment to come. That's what the message was. Just as in our text, the Spirit's going to work through God's people to prosecute the world. And Felix gets it because he was alarmed. I don't like this message. It's only through faith in Christ. It's only because of Christ's righteousness and judgment is coming. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, and He does this through the proclamation of the Word of God. The world cannot receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We receive the ministry. Believers. And we are the instrumentality by which the world is to be convicted of sin, of righteousness and judgment. So believers, that's what He's telling His disciples. You're going to go out and you're going to prosecute the world. You're going to show them how wrong they were. Be faithful witnesses. And I think the same is true for us today. We are to be faithful witnesses for Christ today, prosecuting the world. That's why we're always in so much trouble. Because you judgmental Christians say we're doing this, and you say we have to believe certain things. They don't like that. They don't like absolutes. And that's why my boy Joel gets along so well with the world. No absolutes. Oh, everything's okay. Everything's wonderful. He's not preaching faith in Christ. He's not preaching righteousness and judgment. He never talks about judgment. Okay, We don't want to hear that kind of stuff. But believers, we need to recognize, you and I, when we prosecute the world, when the world does something wrong, we say, no, 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 that's not a marriage. Biblically, marriage is a man and a woman. Husband and wife. What you're doing is not marriage. The world hates us. They get mad at us. They persecute us. So we need to recognize, when we preach the message, when we preach the Word of God, they're not going to like us. And they're going to persecute us. And if we're faithful, we could suffer persecution. We could even come to the point of death. It hasn't come to that point in this country yet. We hear every week about countries around the world where they are being persecuted to the point of death for the message. But that's our calling, believers. The Holy Spirit works through us to prosecute the world, to show them they are guilty. You're guilty, you've been convicted. This is how you stand. All of a sudden it's like, wow, what do I do? And that's what happened in the book of Acts. Peter prosecuted him and he goes, what must we do? They needed a solution because they realized I'm condemned. The world doesn't know it's condemned unless we prosecute them with the Word of God. Okay, that's all I got. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love for us, Lord. Father, this is a difficult text, no doubt. Many have struggled with this. I think I in some sense understand it now, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to be faithful to our calling, Lord, to prosecute the world. Not to be friends with them, not to agree with them, but to convict them, to show them guilty by the Word of God. And Lord, we realize if we are faithful in doing this, it will cost us. May be willing, Lord, to pay the price to see you honored. In Christ's name. Amen.